I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all possessions to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But when there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the things of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you, that's wonderful. We're just going to start with a a clip from a movie this morning, um, and I want you to see how many songs about love you can recognize. Anyone feeling romantic, emotional? No, just me? He was resisting the urge to sing along. Yeah, just Simon's nodding. Oh, and Jason. (laughs) 14 songs were contained in that, 14 songs about love. Um, Unfortunately, we'll have to cut it from the podcast, so if you are listening uh, online, you'll have to search YouTube for uh, Moulin Rouge Love Medley. Just be careful what you click on. Um, (coughs) (coughs) I'm not sure this morning how many songs, how many poems, how many stories have been written about love. Um, It's one of the few things that Google can't provide an answer to, um, but I should imagine it's in the billions. And this morning we're looking at chapter 13 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians and it contains some of the greatest words that were ever written about love. Someone has said uh, that this is the greatest, the strongest and the deepest thing that Paul ever wrote. And I would guess, um, as Steve has already mentioned, that it's the most widely used reading for um, weddings. I know I myself have read it at a few weddings over the last few years. Um, Sometimes it's even read at funerals. Uh, Tony Blair read it at uh, Lady Diana's funeral a number of years ago. And it has an almost poetic nature to it, doesn't it? And even if you've never read your Bible before, chances are you've heard or seen these words somewhere. 
And if you hadn't before this morning, you have now. And it's this wonderful, wonderful chapter. And I'm glad that we have it in our Bibles. Um, But this morning, I'm going to treat this chapter a little bit differently. I'm going to treat this chapter as though I'm looking for um, a new property. It's all about location, location, location. There's a picture of Kirsty and Phil for you to enjoy for a few minutes. Because you see, as wonderful as these words are about love, Paul didn't sit down one afternoon and think, for my 13th chapter to the Corinthians, I'm going to pen a wonderful poem about love um, that will be used forevermore in Christian weddings and posted on the internet over pictures of puppies and mountains. I'm sorry he didn't. That was never his intention. I, I don't mean to burst your bubble this morning. But actually, this chapter... This chapter comes as part of a rebuke that Paul was making to the church in Corinth over their mistreatment of people and over their misuse of the spiritual gifts during their worship services. And it's not so much that it's a a reflection on love as it's actually a call to action. Paul wanted to shift their focus from their their self-centeredness and their pride onto what he calls the most excellent way. And it's an incredibly practical chapter. This is Paul's picture of what love should look like. You'll notice that Paul's description doesn't contain any mention of emotions or gooey feelings. But actually what it does is gives us a list of behaviours, a way of acting. Now the chapter's split up into three sections. The first section, verses 1 to 3, Paul is contrasting love with spiritual gifts. And we spent uh, a fair amount of time on spiritual gifts last week. The second section, verses 4 to 7, he's offering an explanation of what love should look like. And then the third section, he's talking about the eternal value of love. And actually, he begins this section at the end of last week's chapter. Chapter 12, verse 31, he writes, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Now, the chances are, um, if you've got your Bibles open, that your translation has put a heading in between those two sentences. Uh, Mine uh, said, love is indispensable, which is lovely, but the headings were never included. It wasn't what Paul wrote it originally. The chapter headings and all the subheadings you see in your Bible were added at a later date to try and help you understand what's been written. Uh, And sometimes they're helpful, and sometimes I think they do the opposite. Because actually Paul hasn't yet finished his train of thought. Let me just recap for a minute or two from last week. So as you recall, Paul was talking about spiritual gifts. Supernatural abilities that are given to us for the benefit of the whole church. He talked about how everyone has a purpose and a place and how the church needs to work hard to eliminate um, these divisions that had arisen among them. And one of the ways he suggests the church can achieve this is by desiring the greater gifts. He lists um, in verse 28 of chapter 12 those gifts. He says, God has placed in the church, first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance. And at the very bottom of his list, he writes different kinds of tongues. Now, if the, the Corinthians had been presenting Paul with this list, they'd have written, God has placed in his church, first of all, tongues, and then some other stuff. Maybe. Because, you see, for the Corinthians, they, the, the, the gift of tongues was this sign that they had arrived. 
that they had made it, that they were, had been gifted with this heavenly language, the language of the angels, and that they would be speaking this language forevermore into glory. So why shouldn't they speak it all the time? That's what they felt. And Paul comments in chapter 14, which we'll look at in detail next week, um, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, does not speak to the church, um, but to God. Instead, no one understands them. They utter the mysteries of the Spirit. And because the Corinthians were so keen on this gift, so keen on tongues, um, that the rest of the church was suffering, no one understood them. No one was being encouraged. No one's faith was being built up. And so chapter 12, when he talks about desiring the greater gifts, he's talking about those gifts that are of benefit to others. Or as he puts it um, in chapter 14, those that build up the church. And then, and then he says, and I will show you the most excellent way. And the and yet there in that sentence, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. That tells us that there's something beyond spiritual gifts. There's something that they're missing, something that they're lacking. Paul started this letter by telling them that they don't lack any of the gifts. He says, you have all that, and yet you're missing the most excellent way. Okay, let's get into chapter 13. So he starts, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or symbol. Paul is saying you may speak in tongues, and those tongues, they may be um, languages that we know, languages of men, or they may be a heavenly language, you know, the language of angels. But without love, you're just making a noise. You're just making a racket. It's utterly pointless. And then he goes on and he mentions two other spiritual gifts from the previous chapter. He says, if you have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if you have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I have nothing. Now, just to be clear, um, in case you weren't here last week, Paul has no issue with the spiritual gifts. In fact, he spent the whole of last week um, talking about how important they are for the growth of the church. Um, And next week, he's going to advocate really strongly for the gift of prophecy um, in church gatherings. But his point is that if a person's life is not characterized by love, then they become pointless. It's sort of like um, owning a yacht and living hundreds of miles away from the sea. The gifts are given to be used in love. And then he makes it even more challenging for us in verse 3. He says, If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And normally we would consider um, giving to the poor really a good thing. Right, And it, it is, you know, Jesus um, encouraged the rich ruler to do it when he asked, how, how might I inherit eternal life? He said, keep the commands. He says, I do that. He said, well, then sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. But Paul's point is that if it's done without love, then it does you no good. Look at what he says um, at the end of each of these verses. Verse 1, he says, without love, you say nothing. Your words are meaningless. Verse 2, without love you are nothing. It doesn't matter how much you know, how much wisdom you have. Without love, you are nothing. And then verse 3, without love you gain nothing. And these these are strong words. I'd imagine the Corinthians would have found them quite cutting. 
And notice in each of the verses, the issue is not with the spiritual gifts and it's not with the actions, but it's with the person that is performing them. They all follow an if I but do not, I am pattern. It's all about the people. And I think what Paul's suggesting is that although some of what the Corinthians have and some of what the Corinthians do is good, that their behaviour is being motivated by something other than love. And why is that a problem? Surely if they're, they're doing the right things, then it doesn't matter what their, their motivation is. Well, it's a problem because when the problems came, when the issues came, when the division arose, when they started to fight about whether or not you could eat a certain kind of meat, when they were arguing over whether head coverings could be worn, their heart was revealed. Their motivation comes to the service, to the surface, and to the service, interestingly. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount that a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil uh, stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now their hearts were not full of love for each other. They were not full of love for God. They were filled with envy and pride and selfish behaviour. And they were inconsiderate of others. And the evidence could be seen in the church. It's the reason Paul is writing to them. Let's just park the Corinthians for a minute and just think about ourselves. We'll come back to them in a sec. Now, many of you serve in various ways in this church. Some uh, in a very visible way, some in in, in an invisible way behind the scenes. And we're so grateful for everyone um, that serves here with us. But we need to ask ourselves this morning, what is our motivation for serving? Do we do it out of love for God and love for other people or are there other reasons? Do we do it out of a sense of of obligation maybe or or duty? Or is it because um, we're not really sure what else to do with our time? Or maybe it's just something that we've always done. Or maybe sometimes we we do it because it makes us feel important. Or we like to um, be seen looking good in front of other people. This was the Corinthians' problem. They were all about building themselves up, looking good before others. They were so proud of their their intellect and their wisdom. And the reason they wanted tongues was because they felt that it made them look important. It made them look special. It put them in front of other people. Now, the likelihood is that that we have a mixture of motivations because we're, we're human, aren't we? And we're complex creatures. And that's okay as long as the chief motivation in our life is love. That has to be first. Look at how challenging Jesus makes it for us. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's hard, actually, isn't it? If we think about those words. But Jesus is saying, you get the love first and all the rest follows. Now here's where it gets a bit tricky. If we are motivated by love, there will be evidence of it in our lives. And Paul goes on to list what that evidence should be in the next three verses. Now these, this list is, is tailored to the Corinthian church. 
actually what he's doing more than anything is highlighting um, those areas where they were not being loving. But actually I think it's good as well for us to look at it and put ourselves in that situation and see whether we share any similarities um, with the Corinthians this morning. So he starts, love is patient, love is kind. Now that... Uh, there are a number of uh, Greek words for patience, and the one that Paul used here um, specifically is for patience with other people. I think maybe the trickiest one, um, having children is a pretty good test of patience, as I'm sure uh, most parents here will attest to. I remember when Amelie um, uh, entered the, I can do it on my own phase. You remember that one, parents that are here? And, you know, you're ten minutes late out of the door and she's taking an extra five minutes per button. And, come on, come on, come on, come on. (sighs) Patience is our our loving, passive response to people. And it says love is kind, which is our active response to people. Paul is saying that love is about going out of your way to be kind to others. When the woman was caught in adultery in John chapter 8, it was the religious leaders that wanted to, to stone her, to put her death, to death, and Jesus went out of his way to be kind to her. God is incredibly patient and kind with us, isn't he? Thank goodness. But the Corinthians, they were neither patient nor kind. Just two weeks ago, Steve read to us from chapter 11, and it talks about where they were not even prepared to wait for each other when they shared the Lord's Supper. They raced ahead so much so that other people went hungry. They were extremely unkind. Paul continues. He says, It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Now the sort of the literal translation for boast there is um, is not a windbag. Okay? Um, which is arrogant and full of yourself, full of pride, and the Corinthians were so full of themselves. You remember um, in chapter four. Um, where he somewhat sarcastically says to them, already you have all you want. You have become rich and you have begun to reign and that is without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign so we might reign with you. They believed themselves more important than anyone. And Paul said to them, you need to follow me because I only see myself as a servant. Nothing more. You know, many times we say in this church that the greatest you can become in the kingdom of God is a servant. And that was Paul's heart. Paul carries on with his rebuke. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Can you remember chapter 6? Paul is um, rebuking them for taking each other to court. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. You're so wrapped up in the wrongdoing of others that you can't even see your own wrongdoing. Guys, where is the love? I think last week I described Paul as a a parent saying to his children, but you're supposed to love each other. You're supposed to. And Paul's not done yet. He says, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Remember chapter 5? A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. This is all because you're not motivated by love. Top tip. If you see someone about to jump off a bridge, don't stand there and applaud them. Help them. The most loving thing to do is to prevent them from doing something where they will cause harm to themselves. 
If a fellow brother or sister is being led away from God, help them back on track. And then verse 7. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It was the very opposite of the church in Corinth who argued and fought with each other, who cared little for each other's sensibilities and organised themselves into opposing factions. You see, Paul said to them, let me show you the most excellent way. And then he described the exact opposite of them. Can you imagine how it must have felt to receive that letter from Paul? It was like a punch in the gut. But here's the thing. Paul loved them too much not to show them where they were going wrong. Now, I'm sorry uh, this morning if I've slightly undone for you what you felt was a, a beautiful poem on love. Um, it wasn't my intention. But maybe this next bit will help. See, as well as pointing out what the Corinthians were lacking, Paul's words on love do something else. Something more excellent. They point the Corinthians back to Jesus. So true are these words that we can replace the word love with the name of Jesus. And we end up with this. Jesus is patient and he is kind. Jesus does not envy, he does not boast and he is not proud. Jesus does not dishonour others and he was not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered and he keeps no record of wrongs. He's full of grace and mercy. I added that bit. Jesus does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes and always perseveres. The Corinthians couldn't use these words to describe themselves but all of these words can be used to describe Jesus. And what they do is give us this wonderful picture of the cross. Where Jesus didn't insist upon his own way, but he humbled himself to death. To cover our inadequacies. When we were unable to love, he showed us what love really was. The ultimate example. Wiping clean our record of wrongs. And allowing us to experience God's love. This should be our motivating factor. Yeah, the Corinthians must have found this chapter incredibly challenging, but we should too. If you replace the word uh, love with your own name, how far can you read before you start feeling uncomfortable? I'll be honest, I I struggled with Danny's patience. (laughs) Danny's kind, am I? Can someone say yes? Thank you, that's that's lovely. But it shouldn't lead us to despair. It shouldn't lead us to feel like a failure. It should lead us back to the cross. Where we find that Jesus has already done it for us. Not only has he given us the ultimate example, but he's paid the price. He's made it possible that when we mess up, when we are unloving, that we are forgiven for that. If we are willing to repent and come back to the cross. Or maybe even come to the cross for the first time this morning. All we need to do is ask Jesus to come into our lives. Forgive us for where we have been unloving and ask him to help us live the right way and he will send his Holy Spirit to help us do that. And that's true this morning whether you're just hearing about Jesus or you've been a Christian your whole life. Because repentance says that 
I'm getting this wrong, God. And I want to come back to your way of doing it. And that's what the cross is. So I want us just to make that our prayer this morning. I'm not quite finished with this chapter. I'm going to come back to it. But I think it's good at this time um, just to pray. So let's just bow our heads. Father God, we thank you for the ultimate expression of your love. Your son, Jesus, on the cross. Father, thank you that he died to cover all of our inadequacies, all the ways in which we were unable to show love. Father, that even as he died, he prayed for our forgiveness. Father, we are sorry that we so often live our lives apart from this kind of love. And we would ask that you would forgive us again, Father. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to lead lives that are worthy of the sacrifice that has been made for us. Full of your love for yourself and for others. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So Paul finishes this section um, by trying to to broaden the Corinthians' horizons a little bit. This is what he says. Um, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put uh, put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So Paul ends this section by by tackling this Corinthian idea that they've already arrived in glory, that they already have everything that they're ever going to need. Earlier I read to you from chapter 4 where Paul comments um, about that they thought they'd already begun to reign. Gifted with their their heavenly language, they had all they needed, or so they thought. Paul needs them to know that the spiritual gifts were temporary. They're not permanent, they're just, for a time, short-lived. And as good as their experience of the Christian life had been so uh, far, it was partial and it was was incomplete. See, when we come face-to-face... Um, With God, we have no need for tongues, will we? We'll have no need for prophecy or or knowledge because we'll know all we need to know. We'll be able to communicate with God. And how wonderful that will be. So Paul is saying, listen, listen guys, you're making a really big deal about something that's here today and gone tomorrow. Something that's temporary. Don't be so focused on what you can get in this life because there's so much more to come. Earlier I mentioned uh, the rich ruler who asked Jesus how he would inherit eternal life. And Jesus told him, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your mother and father. And he says, I've kept all these since I was a boy. And he says, when Jesus heard this, he said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And it says when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. He was too focused on the here and now and he was missing the bigger picture. He'd been given a chance to follow Jesus and he turned it away because his concern was for the here and now. 
And if we're struggling to love this morning, maybe if we've actually found those words that, that I read earlier really challenging, we think, I'm not managing that at the moment, then maybe we need to check our bigger picture. Do we trust that God is in charge, that he's got it in hand? Yes, I know they cost you money and they cost you time. But money is here today and gone tomorrow and we're going to live forever. What's our bigger picture? I know they wronged you, but God has already forgiven all of your wrongdoings. What's our bigger picture? I know they keep messing up. How patient are we supposed to be with them? Well, how patient do you want God to be with you? What's our bigger picture? Love will last forever. So we need to make it our focus. Love is the most excellent way. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these incredible words of Paul's this morning. This wonderful picture of what it looks like to love. Father, we thank you for how practical this chapter is for us, that we have um, a list of ways that we can aspire to, things that we can follow. And Father, where we've seen that list this morning and we've thought, that's just not where I am today. God, I pray that you would take us back to the cross. Father, that we would know that you have made that sacrifice for us, that you have paid that price for us, that where we have failed, you have succeeded. And Father, I pray that you would help us to have the right picture. We would live in the bigger picture of your love. Father, that we would be assured that you will take care of all things, that you will restore all things, that you will make all things new again. And Father, we can move away from those times where we feel frustrated with people and we we focus in on the petty and the here and now because we know that you have got it in hand, that your love has conquered all. Father, that we know love wins. God, I pray that you would help us to live in that reality. In Jesus' precious name.